Well, good morning, all. As you know, um, we're dealing with some heavyweight theological topics um, in this Advent, all related to Advent. We started with incarnation. We proceeded with divine judgment last week. And now we come to repentance. And Dominique and I are going to share this slot. And in the latter part of the time, he's going to talk about uh, sacramental confession in the Anglican tradition, what it involves. It may be something that you're already familiar with, but perhaps not all of you. And by way of preparation for that, I want to run rather quickly on the handout through uh, some of the key biblical and traditional material about the notion of repentance, so that you have that um, as a backcloth. Mac, you don't have a handout, do you? Are there any leftovers? It's an... Okay, here we go. Mac's just at the back, thanks. Thank you so much. <clears throat> so let's start by asking the big question, which is, what is repentance? Um, as we'll see in in Hebrew, the, the, the verb that's normally used to express this is shuv, which means to turn. And in Greek, it's metanoia, which means turning around. And I think, therefore, we could give a, a sort of core definition to repentance as turning to face again the reality of God or God in Christ, turning ourselves in the right direction, if you like, aligning our desires or realigning our desires. And it's very striking that if we open the beginning of the Gospels, um, at least the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark and Luke, this notion is right there in your face at the very opening of the, of the, of the Gospel. So Mark 4 asks that uh, what this whole gospel is about is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This seems to have been the keynote of Jesus's um, opening um, gambit, as it were, in his, uh, in his earthly ministry. And as I've already preached once today and will again at 10.30, what's remarkable here is that this notion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and for the sake of the coming kingdom it appears to be the message that he shared with John the Baptist. He seems to have been a member of John the Baptist's circle, perhaps longer than the synoptic Gospels and John appear to, uh, appear to show initially. Um, and this is, the, this is the message they have in common, so it's absolutely key. And when we go to the book of Acts, which has, as you remember, especially in Acts chapters 2 and 3, um, a reconstruction of some of the very earliest preaching of the Christians, mainly in the mouth of Peter. Repentance is, remains there, the absolutely key opening gambit. So if you haven't been thinking about repentance recently, it's kind of odd because it looks as if this is sort of bullet point number one in Jesus's teaching. Um, oddly, it's not the key word that we get at the beginning of John, at John's Gospel. It's not really one of his core reflections. Um, instead, at the beginning of John, we get a kind of ding-dong between John the Baptist and Jesus, and a clear sign that there's some kind of, um, uh, kind of rivalry here, um, which had to be worked out. Now, next we come to the trick question of the morning. 
So if we're repenting, repenting from something, and it must be sin, amartia in Greek, but what is sin? Anyone like to hazard a definition? Yes. Missing the mark. Missing the mark in Greek, it is hamartai, it is. But if we think, such a learned uh, church arena, um, in Greek, that's what it means, like firing an arrow and you don't get in the right place, all right? But if you think back, yes. Yes, that kind of thing. What about if you think about Genesis 3? Yes. Turning away. Turning away, or yes, or certainly misdirecting. That's all, I think, laden in this Hamartine idea. But if you go back to Genesis 3 and think of the fall, What's the original sin? Wanting to be like God. Ah, okay. Any other options? Disobedience. Disobedience, yes. Right. Wanting to be like God by our own power. Oh, okay. Good, yes. I think it's a failure to trust God. A failure to trust God. Now, I think in Lent, we're going to have, um, we're going to have a midrash on... Genesis 3, because by now you'll realize that there is absolutely no uniform answer, either in Judaism or Christianity, as to what exactly sin is. No uniform answer. And that is very fascinating, because unlike the doctrine of the Incarnation or the doctrine of the Trinity, about which blood was spilt in the church and a long time spent on um, uh, figuring out exactly what had to be said, um, for certain errors to be avoided. The doctrine of sin has never had a council devoted to it. Um, and in the West, we are extraordinarily affected by Augustine. And it's his interpretation of what's going on in Genesis 3 that has most deeply affected us. So the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and indeed of the Anglican Church, from there is Augustinian, and it is the idea that sin is fundamentally disobedience, disobedience against God's command. But at the same time, Augustine has a very complicated teaching about how sin is the distortion or misdirection or misaggregation of our desire. Key to, key to Augustine's teaching about sin is the characteristic of desire. So, <clears throat> I've just spent about three years studying, for the sake of my next volume of systematics, what it is that sin is according to Genesis 3, and I would love to have a discussion about that down the road, because different parts of the Christian world have completely different interpretations of uh, Genesis 3, and the one that we know best is the one that comes from Augustine and argues that sin actually is so pervasive and systemic that it, as it were, comes uh, with our birth through sexual and procreative acts. So we are, as it were, permeated by sin, simply genetically, according to Augustine. But that is not the view of major portions of the Eastern Orthodox part of the church. Later, of course, <clears throat> in... Um, Later, of course, in Western thinking, um, lists of sins were drawn up, the seven deadly sins. But they came, um, by the time of Gregory the Great, but they came from 
um, a longer list of eight in someone called Evagrius Ponticus in the late fourth century, who's one of the early monks, and who codifies much of the wisdom of the desert. And the, the sin that he has that uh, the West dropped off the list, interestingly, is the sin of lupe, of, of sadness, of depression. In modern terms, I think it's rather problematic to think about depression as a sin. We now think of it as a clinical condition that needs treatment. But that was one of Evagrius's distracting thoughts, along with pride, sloth, anger, envy, gluttony, covetousness or greed, and lust. So, we have a bit of an idea of what it is we're meant to be repenting from. Disobedience against God's holy laws, as codified in the Ten Commandments and in the Bible more generally. Um, a tendency to idolatry, which the rabbis often focus on more intensively, of, as it were, getting the wrong um, desires uh, uh, to the forefront of our minds, which then distract us from our true desiring goal, which is in God. Um, and, uh, and this uh, state of systemic being out of kilter with God, which is described by Augustine in terms of original sin. Now, if we think what is involved in repentance and go on to um, point three, um, it's rather interesting to look at key moments in the Hebrew scriptures first where a turn or a return or a repentance issues in a change of action. There are moments in the Hebrew scriptures um, of particular importance for such turning. If you think about the prophetic um, portion of the Old Testament, um, you will find absolutely sprinkled through the prophets a call to the nation to return, to repent. And so repentance isn't just an individual thing. It's often a matter of, um, of national apostasy or idolatry, very often associated with abandoning true worship and instead setting up false gods, literally. Um, so Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, the language of, and the demand for return drips continuously from their writings. And it's in that tradition, of course, that John the Baptist sees himself as standing, and Jesus too, at the start of his, at the start of his ministry. Key moments of repentance that are memorable from the Hebrew scriptures are both individual and corporate. The two that came to mind as most um, uh, extraordinary, really, are, on the one hand, um, in the history books, the repentance of David after his um, sinning with Bathsheba, um, which involves a personal um, putting on of sackcloth and ashes, um, of public humiliation. The child they conceive together dies, if you remember. But after this turning, they then conceive another child who turns out to be Solomon, the great king to come. And that's a very powerful narrative in 2 Samuel 12. 
And the one that I love the best, actually, in the Old Testament is the, the repentance of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, which is the funniest book in the Old Testament, um, where Jonah doesn't want to go off and preach to Nineveh to change their ways. And if you remember, um, ends up falling off a boat and being swallowed, and et cetera, et cetera, and being spat out, finally gets there. And blow me down, the only time in the Old Testament that preaching really works, they all do it. They, they do their sackcloth and ashes, they, they repent and turn, and of course um, God is very pleased with them and doesn't bring the wrath on them. And then Jonah goes into a terrible sulk um, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and sits down and is given, um, if you remember, a plant that comes up to shade him, and then it withers. Um, it's, it's a marvellous book. Um, it, it, it's so full of humour. Um, but there the Ninevites really did do what they were meant to do. And so in the Syriac-speaking churches, that right is, and that, that story is to the core of uh, Lenten observance, reflecting on the Ninevites. I should also mention, of course, that within the Jewish tradition, um, corporate a corporate annual act of repentance is encoded in Yom Kippur um, as part of the High Holy Days. And it's interesting that I think the Syriac tradition is the one part of Christianity that kept something as corporate as that, taking it over from influence from Judaism. Um, just to mention now further, how the theme of repentance develops within um, Jesus' teaching um, <clears throat> and how metanoia for him is clearly not just a change of action or ritual activities, but a whole change of attitude. And it's somewhat associated, I think, with the uh, rather elusive teaching that he also has about becoming like a child in various parts of the Gospels. Um, because it, the, the response to the kingdom needs to be, as it were, um, untainted with, um, with uh, self-interest. The turning and repentance that he asks of um, is, a, is a repentance that changes one's whole life. The, the most significant story in the Gospels that reflects this is, of course, the prodigal son, where we have an extraordinary manifestation of the idea that um, the uh, badly behaved younger son could be so beloved of the father um, that even when he's prepared his speech of abasement and repentance, uh, the father doesn't even really want to hear it, but rushes out to receive him back. Um, and the grumpiness of the older brother is, I think, one of the most... Um, um, searing elements in that story, so true to life. Um, it's interesting that uh, Luke 5.32, I think, preserves the most distinctive of Jesus' sayings, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it's actually sinners in a strange way who are favoured by Jesus in his ministry, um, just as the repentant prodigal son is favoured over the righteous older son. Although, remember what Jesus says to the older son, um, my son, everything that I have is already yours. In other words, 
the, the elder son is not actually berated. The elder son is already within the circle of, of love and mercy. Um, um, any comments or questions so far? Um, <clears throat> I just want to mention that in the desert traditions um, of early monasticism, um, we get particularly intense focus on repentance. It is, after all, in monasticism that those who retreat to the desert wish to recreate the most demanding form of response to Jesus' teaching at a period when the um, Christianity has become legitimized by Constantine and the problem of laxity and post-baptismal sin um, becomes renewed as an issue. Um, and I've recently found an amazing uh, text by someone called Mark the Monk. I don't know whether he's your favorite bedtime reading, but I, I, I commend him to you, not least um, because <clears throat> I don't know whether you're familiar with these wonderful paperback editions which St. Vladimir's Seminary puts out, but they make a lot of, uh, to us as, as Westerners, rather obscure texts, particularly monastic texts, easily available and cheaply available. And Mark the Monk, we don't know exactly when he lived, but probably in the early 5th century, and he codifies a lot of earlier teaching on um, prayer, um, the monastic life, and on repentance. And um, the very major sections of his writing are on the importance of repentance. And I think what's particularly interesting about his insights, this is why I choose to mention him specially, is that he regards the spiritual person as in, as it were, more danger than the unspiritual person as regards the need for repentance. Um, so, as it were, the higher up the slippery slope you go, the greater the danger of sliding to the bottom. And he says, and do not say, how can the spiritual person fail? If such a person persists in little things, he would not, will not fail. When, however, he welcomes some small thing from among those things that are hostile to the spiritual life and persists in it without repenting, that thing, insignificant in and of itself, once it has settled in and grown, refuses to live any longer as an orphan with him. Rather, with a small show of friendship, it violently drags him, as though he were bound and gagged to its parents. If after waging battle through prayer, the spiritual person manages to cut himself free of this evil desire, he will hold his ground by maintaining his standards though he will lose something of his former passionlessness insofar as the desire for some evil separates him from it. If in the end he accommodates himself to the tighter grip of what has hold of him, giving up on his efforts at battle and prayer, it is inevitable that he will also be hooked like a fish by other passions. And thus, as one passion succeeds another, little by little he is led astray by force and habit. This is the monastic Eastern insight that the devil will get in wherever there's a point of vulnerability. And once he finds his way in, other temptations will follow. Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century, interestingly, says that gluttony is the place where the devil normally gets in first. This is very different from the Western Augustinian emphasis on sex as the main arena of problem. <laughs> Gregory is inclined to think that, um, that uh, food and drink are a more dangerous arena of temptation. 
Um, it is Cassian about the same time in the 5th century, whom we discussed a little yesterday when talking about monastic prayer, who brings a lot of this monastic wisdom about repentance and confession to an abba, to an older monk, into the Western tradition. Now, before I hand over to Dominique, I just want to mention the somewhat controversial nature of sacramental confession within the Anglican tradition. This is because um, through the vicissitudes of the English Reformation, because we went first in a Lutheran direction and then later into Bucerian and Calvinist influences, then flipped back in the Marian moment to Catholicism again, and then into a kind of via media in Elizabeth's reign, we savoured everything, you might say, in terms of different continental insights. Um, and uh, Cranmer himself changed his mind several times about confession, sacramental confession, during his life. There is a very good monograph on this, which I put on the list, but please don't buy it, because it'll cost you an arm and a leg, uh, which by Ashley Null, Thomas Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance. And what we see is that in his earlier career, when he was strongly influenced by Luther, um, uh, Cranmer was uh, extremely happy with continuing with the practice of auricular confession, sacramental confession, to a priest. And as you probably know, Lutherans still support the practice, and uh, particularly in Scandinavian Lutheranism, um, it's required of ministers. Um, and um, in demanding Lutheran circles such as that of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, confession was required strongly of his ordinands in his little um, seminary, which he set up during the war period. Um, but the outcome of the English Reformation was that uh, sacramental confession actually fell out and was replaced by very beautiful um, confession prayers which were laced into the Book of Common Prayer, both at morning prayer, um, we have erred and strayed from my ways like lost sheep, um, and in uh, Cranmer's own uh, prayer of confession for, um, for the Eucharist. Actually, I've put down here Eucharist 2, but it's Eucharist 1 you need to look at if you want to see Cranmer's own, um, which you will probably know. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins of wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. Going on, the remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. We have excised this from our right at the moment at ASA. I think we need it back, but that's something for discussion. Um, you will not be surprised to know that the people who brought back sacramental confession in England were the Tractarians. And so it's out of the Oxford movement that the practices were stored, initially borrowing um, the Roman Catholic rite for use. Pusey was a very famous and wonderful confessor. Um, John Henry Newman um, uh, devoted a number of his early uh, sermons before he became a Roman Catholic to the importance of repentance. Um, and I put one of these down on the list, um, which is particularly beautiful meditation on the prodigal son. 
Rather remarkably, in the 1979 prayer book, two rites for sacramental confession are, um, are included. Um, in the English prayer book on common worship, we do not have the rites. You have to go to a supplemental volume. That's interesting that the Episcopalians decided to go ahead with that. Um, and Father Dominique is now going to talk about this because what we would like to lay before you is um, how significant a matter it is if at least some people in a congregation are considering um, uh, availing themselves of the power of this sacrament. Um, let me just tell you that it has an effect not just on oneself personally, but on the body, even though, of course, it's surrounded by a great deal of confidentiality, which is absolutely necessary. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Dominique now, unless you have any immediate questions as an interim transition. Do you? <laughs> yes, <clears throat> John. You made reference to uh, the Augustine view of sin, mm. but you, you think it had a completely different view coming out of, is it the Orthodox tradition? Yes. Is there a kind of bumper sticker you could give us? <laughs> Um, the bumper sticker is this. Actually, there's quite a lot of varied shades within orthodoxy and also within the Syriac-speaking strands of the church, which, um, by the way, have uh, the East Syrian uh, bits of the church, which my husband studies, so he tells me all about this, um, have a completely different rendition of Genesis 3, um, in which Genesis 3 is about growing up learning how to discern. It's not about falling into a state of systemic, systemic um, um, incapacity. All right. um, but someone like Gregory of Nyssa, in, who's representative of um, the wider Orthodox Greek tradition, uh, would, would not argue with Augustine that we have, as it were, um, a inherited genetic um, um, uh, besmirchment by sin, but rather would argue that each of us, as it were, has our opportunists for choice. We are, of course, extremely badly affected by the people around us, so you might say that it comes to something rather similar. But it is a very different view of freedom and a rather different view of grace. And it's really interesting, I think, that we don't discuss these differences. They are very important to one's whole perspective on um, the potential of Grace's transformation of our lives. Yeah. Is it Augustinian, the um, ordering of loves in one's life? Yes. Well, ultimately, because the trouble is, Augustine writes about Genesis 3 in five different places. This is what we could do if we have a seminar or a morning on this. He also just isn't completely consistent. But as you probably know, that his notion of desire, which in part he inherits from the Neoplatonists, is key to his understanding of selfhood. And so what goes wrong in the fall is a kind of corruption of our desiring faculty, which then makes it impossible without the provenience of grace and cooperative grace for us to reorder our desires. Um, and our types of desires. He has a lot of different words for desire. He's not completely systematic. Later medieval authors 
sorted those out. And you're probably thinking of C.S. Lewis and the different kinds of loves um, that comes out of the medieval tradition. But if there's an interest in this, we can certainly have more sessions on it. It's very fascinating. Dominique, it's your space. <laughs> Of course, there's never any pressure following Sarah. <laughs> um, and the invitation that she extended to me was to explore a little bit forgiveness in the sacrament. But I'd like to, as a, as a backdrop, um, ask the question, which is the subtitle to this reflection this morning, can all the bad things that I have done truly be forgiven, gulp. Because our understanding of this, we bring to our request for forgiveness, be it in our personal prayer or in the sacramental context. So it's a, it's a, it's a very important question. It's a daunting question. An unavoidable question, really, for us who sometimes fail to love. The definition that stays with me of sin came from Sister Nina in fifth grade. It is anything unloving. This question could perhaps be asked somewhat differently. How do we know that God forgives anything? When we ask God in the secrecy of our prayer to forgive us for our unloving, how do we know when or that we are forgiven. When we receive the sacrament, forgiveness in the sacrament, and we hear the priest say, I absolve you, or our Lord Jesus Christ absolve you through my ministry, how do we know that we've been reconciled to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And you might respond when it comes to the sacrament, well, the priest said it. True. But the words of the priest are, strictly speaking, not proof. Strictly speaking, there is no proof that we are forgiven by God. And a non-believer might say in a cynical, a passing cynical moment, you just tell yourself that you're forgiven. And it makes you feel better. It's that old game of self-persuasion, right? Well, all of this is based in faith on what we believe to be revealed. And so we answer these questions in faith, in reference to what we, in faith, believe to be revealed. So let me situate a couple of things, and then we'll comb through very, very briefly the sacramental celebration. Forgiveness is an act, a supreme act of mercy. And mercy is a supreme act of love. Otherwise put, Love has a particular face we call mercy, and mercy has a particular face we call forgiveness. Now, if I may reference one of my favorite theologians who died in 1274, Thomas Aquinas, he says, quote, to love someone is nothing else than to will good to that person. To love someone is nothing else than to will good to that person. So follow this. Now, to will good to a person there where they are lacking, be it materially, emotionally, mentally, whatever the case may be, is to be merciful. Mercy is love for a person there where they are lacking or broken. 
And the worst lack or brokenness is that of the human heart. Mother Teresa, who of course cared for people experiencing dire material poverty, was known to say that the worst form of poverty is that of not loving and not being loved. So when a person's poverty of not loving is directed towards us, that is to say when someone is unloving with us, someone hurts us, the love that is mercy takes on a particular form called forgiveness. Again, forgiveness, a supreme act of mercy. In this case, with respect to the poverty of the other person, that directly affects me in very ugly fashion. So to forgive is therefore to will good to the person that has hurt us, which sounds absurd, which sounds masochistic perhaps. In a certain sense, it is. So the question, can all the bad things that I have done truly be forgiven? In other words, does God always will good to me when I hurt him. I think the pivotal revelation which helps us to answer this question is quite simply from John's first epistle, chapter four, verse eight, God is love. God is love. It's quite overwhelming to ponder even more overwhelming to experience because in the realm of human affairs and our human relationships, we have no experience of someone who is love. So if God is love, let's be simplistic about this in a good way, then the answer to our question is yes. But what are the implications and ramifications and repercussions of this? If God is love, then God is merciful and God forgives unconditionally. If God is love, then as St. Isaac, the seventh century bishop of Nineveh, the ancient Assyrian city of the upper Mesopotamia, what is now modern day northern Iraq says, all God can do is love. This means that God only wills us good. The love originates in him and is not affected whatsoever by our failings. So we bring all of this with us in our hearts and our minds when we seek forgiveness. It's important, I think, always to bear this in mind, obviously. As St. Paul says to Timothy, if we are unfaithful, he, Jesus, remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So, I did have a question that I'd like to ask in passing. There is one sin mentioned in the scriptures as the unforgivable sin. Well, how can that be based on everything we've just said? Found in Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 12. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. We will return to this one. Frightening. Well, I frame it this way, which I hope is not circumventing. If God's ultimate pouring forth of himself is the gift of the Holy Spirit, who, as Thomas Aquinas says, can be called gift, then to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to reject the gift and thus close ourselves to forgiveness 
God does forgive everything, but God never forces entry. And so there is potentially one instance in which he does not reach us, and that is when we close and bolt the door. We do remain free because love always presupposes freedom. Of course, what happens when we die and meet this irresistible God who is love is another question. So, the actual sacrament. The sacraments in general presuppose a very particular perspective on instrumentality, that God likes to make use of instruments. According to our tradition, there are seven. Of course, in here you'll see two primary sacraments and then five sacramental rites. Part of my preparation to transition to being a priest in the Episcopal Church were were monthly two-hour-long sessions with Bishop Mark Dyer. Some of you may be familiar with him. Retired Bishop of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, become professor at Virginia Theological Seminary. And I went in to ask him what I said. I don't, I don't understand. Wait, two, was it two major sacraments and then five mini sacraments? So are you, are you trying to quantify grace? So I get 100% grace in the two and 50% grace in the, in the other five? And he looked at me and said, there are seven. <laughs> it's a lovely way of compromising in the presentation. Worry not. All seven are channels of grace. All seven are guaranteed encounters with the author of the sacraments, whose name is Jesus the Christ. So this particular experience of forgiveness is one in which God makes use of an instrument, obviously. The catechism on page 861 asks the question about this sacrament. And it helps us to perhaps begin to understand what what is special about this forgiveness. It was mentioned earlier, there is something about being reconciled to the body of Christ, I believe, that occurs in this sacrament. We don't need the sacraments because Jesus is beyond them, but yet he has established them, we believe, so that we know where to go in a special way to encounter him. There's also the assurance of pardon that is guaranteed in the sacrament. So how do we prepare to receive this sacrament, to encounter Christ in the sacrament? It's quite simple. We begin first by steeping ourselves in prayer, in contact with the one whom we will encounter in this special way. Our focus in faith, through the instrument that is the priest, is Christ always, the mercy of God incarnate. We come in the sacrament to be flooded with mercy. Secondly, there is what we sometimes traditionally call, in preparation for, an examination of conscience. So we need to spend time in prayer, taking a look at ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit. A very good starting place are the Ten Commandments. Thank you, Lord, for the guidebook. We take a look at ourselves in the light of the Ten Commandments. In the Book of Common Prayer on page 317, in preparation for the Eucharist, interestingly enough, there is an exhortation. And of course, the Decalogue is listed but we read the following on page, again, 317 in this exhortation. 
If in your preparation you need help and counsel, then go and open your grief to a, a discreet and understanding priest, not an ugly, overbearing priest, and confess your sins that you may receive the benefit of absolution and spiritual counsel and advice to the removal of scruple and doubt, the assurance of pardon and the strengthening of your faith, all that is promised to us, guaranteed in this sacrament. So the sacrament is a gift. It can be a little daunting, hence the recommendation that you go to a discreet and understanding priest who is bound by his or her vows to secrecy. As an instrument of God, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, the priest promises not to share what you entrust to the Lord in that act with anybody. That would be a horrific betrayal of the gift. So the actual rite, and there are two rites, as was mentioned, is found in the Book of Common Prayer on page 453, excuse me, 447. And I will simply conclude by reading what is stated here concerning the rite. And then you, I invite you in the weeks to come perhaps to comb through the actual rite to see how it is an encounter, to see how it is an encounter in mercy. So we read the following, the ministry of reconciliation which has been committed by Christ to his church is exercised through the care each Christian has for others, through the common prayer of Christians assembled for public worship, and through the priesthood of the church and the ministers declaring absolution. The reconciliation of a penitent is available for all who desire it. It's not restricted to times of sickness. Confessions may be heard anytime and anywhere. Two equivalent forms of service are provided here to meet the needs of penitents. The absolution in these services may be pronounced only by a bishop or priest. Another Christian may be asked to hear a confession but it must be made clear to the penitent that absolution will not be pronounced. Instead, a declaration of forgiveness is provided. When a confession is heard in a church building, interesting details, the confessor may sit inside the altar rails or in a place set aside to give greater privacy, and the penitent kneels nearby. If preferred, the confessor and penitent may sit face-to-face -face for a spiritual conference leading to absolution or a declaration of forgiveness. When the penitent has confessed all serious sins troubling the conscience and has given evidence of due contrition, the priest gives such counsel and encouragement as are needed and pronounces absolution. Before giving absolution, the priest may assign to the penitent a psalm, prayer, or hymn, to be said, or something to be done as a sign of penitence and thanksgiving. The content of a confession, as was stated, is normally not a matter of subsequent discussion. The secrecy of a confession is morally absolute for the confessor 
and must under no circumstances be broken. It belongs to Jesus. So we have time now for some questions, if you'd like, and I will let Sarah, of course, field those. Yes, uh, Raymond. How can there be absolution if there are great parties who hold restitution mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. should and can still be made? Sure. Well, although in confession you often bring others into the space because, of course, when you start to think about your own sins, they are so often entangled with things that have been done to you, all right? Nonetheless, the absolution is for you, all right? You can only confess your own sins. I'm talking about things ill done and done to others harm. Yes. That once mm -hmm. were taken for exercise of virtue. Yes. Would we have committed against the other? Right. In the other way. Sure. Well, so all we you are committing, we are commit, we are we are confessing. Yes. Offenses committed against others. Right. Yes. I see. Um, what you're asking for is forgiveness for what you have done, but it may be, and the absolution is given, but sometimes the absolution is with the uh, serious request that you uh, take some action to put right what you have done, all right? It is within the power of the priest to withhold absolution. And Dominique did not mention this complication, which is very much on our mind in this nation that um, there are new uh, requirements that are put forward by each diocese, both Anglican and Roman Catholic, about issues of sexual abuse. And before I hear any confession, I always say, now if something comes up, which uh, uh, is something that needs to go to the authorities in relating to abuse of a minor, then I will withhold absolution and um, this will be the one case in which uh, confidentiality cannot be maintained. All right. So this is a shift, it's a very big shift in the church's reflections about the use of this sacrament. Um, and if you're also worrying about the kind of hermeneutics of suspicion about the way that the sacrament has in the past sometimes been used erotically, you may be aware of the writings of Michel Foucault on this in his History of uh, Sexuality. Um, this is also another very important arena for discussion. If you are making your confession and you have any um, suspicion that there is a manipulation of this intimacy against you, um, then that is a matter that definitely needs reporting. That's why I'm a little bit unhappy about the use of the term secrecy, because I prefer professional um, uh, uh, confidentiality, which is absolute under the sacrament, except under these very specific conditions of an abusive relationship which needs dealing with. Yep. Um, this is not just about the unforgivable <laughs> sin of any sin, but I remember C.S. Lewis, and I can't get this quote exactly right, but. The, 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 the locks and the keys in the, in the prisons of hell yeah. are all on the inside. 
Yes, yes, yes. For us to turn and open ourselves if we want. Are you familiar with uh, uh, Simon Wiesenthal, the uh, yes. one who just died of Nazi yeah, absolutely. sunflower? Yes, yes, I am. And I think that was behind the question. Um, I, I would like to have a longer discussion when we talk about sin, about forgiveness and who can give forgiveness. Um, because it's the strong tradition of Judaism that only God can forgive. And that's discussed by Jesus in Mark 2 and parallels. Um, who can forgive sins except God alone? Um, and then at the end of that, Jesus says, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So there is a, a paradox going on here within Christianity, encoded in that particular gospel story about whether we are able to forgive sins as humans only in virtue of Christ being the Son of Man and the Son of God. All right. um, what the priest does, by the way, in give granting absolution is not personally, as it were, absolve the person from this sin, but in virtue of Christ standing in as the instrument. All right. Are you saying that because of the sunflower story, you are um, averse to sacramental confession? Because that's no, a, I'm not. yeah. Mm. I think it's one of the most mm. underused, mm. most profound uh, sacraments and rites in yeah. the church. Um, but this was this amazing presentation of this SS who committed one of the most heinous crimes. Exactly. Who pulls a Jew off the work line in a ghetto and talks to him for days and days. Mm. While dying. Yeah. The subtitle of the sunflower is on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. Yes. And at the very, very end, after you've read this 100 pages of this most heinous crime, and you can't rank them, but it is, uh, he says to the Jew, will you forgive? Mm. And the, the answer is not given, but there are the you know, second hundred pages are fifty or sixty different responses. Responses, which yes. are yeah. for a fascinating sure. uh, uh, discussion. Absolutely, uh, we might want to do, to do that, and this is such a short period of discussion right now. But my own response to that is that while it appears there is a complete uh, disjunct between many of the Jewish responses that you can't forgive someone for something that has been done to somebody else. Right and the Catholic responses, which go to confession and get it over with, that appears to be a complete disjunct. But I think there is a convergence, biblically and theologically, in the idea that actually God is always the one who forgives. It is in virtue of the fearfulness of God's capacity for forgiveness that we step into this sacrament. We don't manipulate it. If we do manipulate it, we are abusing the sacrament. Lots of questions. Yes, Helen. Mm. About the frequency of confession, mm. because I came from tradition where confession was much more frequent. Yes, exactly. And, mm. uh, and it is act of turning, and we are weak. Yes. And I think that frequent confession actually helps us mm. uh, to stay on the path and hopefully walk on that path, uh, getting closer to God with the help of priests who kind of represents Christ yes. in that. Uh, sacrament, and I just maybe want to advocate for at mm. least common confession in the service, mm. uh, and hopefully we'll all we'll somehow make. Uh, Certainly, in in the Orthodox tradition, uh, communion is received slightly less commonly, but is taken very seriously. Well, it depends where you are, um, and there is a strong suggestion that you should 
have regular sacramental confession before receiving the sacrament. It's interesting, it's done in the body of the church in front of the icon of Christ. And so it is very clear that you are confessing to Christ and the priest is on the side. Mm. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, the, uh, the frequency is a matter of personal, personal I think, uh, uh, a tray. Um, and this sacrament perhaps is not for everybody, or it's con to consider at a time of major transition. I first made my, I made my first confession just before I married Chip. Um, I, I think it's, it's for everybody to think about. I, it is an extremely powerful undertaking, which is not humanly made, and it has to be experienced, I think. Jesse, I think you were trying to ask something. Yeah. Um, so something that has always rubbed me the wrong way, I guess, about sacrament mm. and perhaps I was conditioned to think this way. I grew up in the Baptist mm. tradition, um, but uh, is really an emphasis on this turning of the of one's life mm. around. Um, and you kind of hear this a lot in testimony meetings and stuff in more low church settings. Sure. Um, Whereas uh, in this sacramental confession, you're sort of making um, continual uh, requests for absolutions, perhaps even of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so... Yes, uh, confessions are very repetitive. Yeah, not, not, not at all that that is bad in, mm. any, in any sense of... Um, I, I think that that's wonderful. But I, I do think that for me, I um, get frustrated with constantly coming back and confessing the same thing yes. and realizing that um, I still feel under the power of sin and death in so many aspects mm. of my life in the sense that when Jesus commands us to literally change the direction of our life, I'm like, have I done that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can continue to act in these ways that certainly don't seem to conform to Jesus's commands for my life. Um, and I seem to not be alone in that. Yes. Um, and I think it's really, especially in this hyper-connected age, it's really difficult to even understand all of one's own actions. Exactly. The moral consequences of them all, such that a, a full moral inventory of my life is rather a grim, <laughs> takes a very grim picture of what, what possibilities repentance would look like. Sure. It's very good to hear this. I, I think, however, that rightly understood sacramental confession, even when repeated, you know, several times a year, say three or four times a year, is of necessity repetitive because we struggle with the same things throughout our lives. The difference that is made by confessing to a confessor is that the confessor helps one to have a, a more, um, a less beat, self-beating up view about this and a more objective view um, and a kind of loving guidance about these matters that you keep coming back to until eventually something shifts. So in fact, confession is precisely for people who feel they're going round in circles, <laughs> um, not the opposite. Um, we've suddenly got lots of questions and we're running out of time, but uh, let's hear what the questions are. Jay, <laughs> and then Ian. On, on mm. this point, mm. it, it, I mean, part of, part of this whole um, process is sin, repentance, which is a turning toward 
Christ and God away from sin. Exactly. So part of that is some change. Exactly. Is to, you know, I mean, you may slip back again, but the, the sense of relief. But isn't, but isn't, isn't that part of the confessional discussion too, is the turn? Yes. One of the early monks said, I'm sure you know this saying, every day I fall down and I get up again. I fall down and I get up again. And this is, this, this, this right is intended to help us not give up in our falling down. Ian, last question. Sorry, you've been asking for a long time. The, the church teaches that um, you should be sinless to get to it. Mm, does it? <laughs> I've come to call the sinners to repentance, not, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm going back to my Catholic tradition. <laughs> Having said that, um, and, and I did hear what Father said mm. in terms of the unconditional love of Christ. And if, if God loves us and Christ loves us, then even in spite of everything that we do, is enough for His mercy is His mercy now essentially going to forgive us. Mm -hmm. And what's the purpose then of us doing all the stuff that you're talking about <laughs> if in fact that's going to happen at the end anyway? Right. Good question. I mean, for many people, simply turning to the act of confession in the Eucharist is enough. But there is a danger that we slide through that um, without reflection and that we are actually limping around all our lives with certain things that we can't shift. And if it's that that you feel, then I think it's something that it's really worth considering availing yourself of this particular sacrament. As I say, it's not for everybody and it's not for everybody at all times of their lives. It is required of us to, because if we're going to hear confessions, we must ourselves be making our confessions. Yeah. I'm going to stop. There's yes. a wonderful expression mm. say regarding confession or other things. All may, yes. none must, yeah. some should. Some should. That's right. Yeah. And finally, there are two books at the end of the handout that I really commend to you. By Martin Smith, whom you may know in this diocese, former SSJE monk, and then a, a, a book he wrote with Julia Gatter more recently, and here's one of them. Um, if this is something that you're considering, I suggest you buy one of those books and read it, um, and turn over their reflections and suggestions. And if you want to come and talk about this prior, uh, then uh, both of us are always open to discuss the possibility of your making this step without requiring that you then do because it's a big step and uh, you don't want to lurch into it without some reflection and preparation. Thank you so much. Thank you.